from the book of Hosea. There's a call to repentance in chapter 6. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days. On the third day, he will raise us up. Does that sound familiar, being raised up on the third day? On the third day, he'll raise us up so we can live in his presence. Let us strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do seek your forgiveness for our sins and our sinful hearts, Father. We do thank you that you do bind us up, you do revive us, you do raise us up, Heavenly Father. For if we know the Lord Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, then we live in your presence. We can say, you are our God and we are your people. Father, you command us to strive to know the Lord. And this afternoon, Heavenly Father, please, will you help us to do that from this passage in Matthew. And Heavenly Father, for your servant who stands before these people, with every breath that I'm given, may I sing salvation's song, Father. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if Jesus spoke to you right now, what would you do? What would you do? I hope you understand that every time you open your Bible and read, every time somebody stands at the front and reads God's word to you, Jesus is speaking to you. And we read some of Jesus' words a few minutes ago, and he's speaking to you now. Verse 13 of chapter 7, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Uh, there's a, a clear command and choice that Jesus puts before you this afternoon. His command is this. Enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. But what does Jesus mean by the gate? Why is one gate narrow and the other gate wide? Well, the Bible tells us that the gate is not a what, but a who. Uh, in John, uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So Jesus is the gate. He's the gate of salvation. And salvation is through Jesus alone. Naturally, many of you know, we're sinners. Uh, we're under the wrath of a very holy God. We deserve absolutely nothing but his judgment. But as we come to Jesus and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, then Jesus becomes the narrow gate 
and he opens and commends us to enter. You know, today the idea of a narrow gate God is not very popular. People say it's bigoted thinking, it's uh, intolerant thinking. People are offended. They say, well, believing there's only one way to get to him doesn't sound like a, a loving, inclusive God to me. Uh, but actually, he's God who put those verses in the Bible. And they make it clear that there is only one way to him. And that way is through Jesus, the Son, the narrow gate. The God of the Bible is a narrow gate God. He is the only one way to me, God. But people prefer a God of their own creation, of their own imagination, a God that suits them better. But the God of the narrow gate, the only one way to me, God, is quite clear that we come to him on his terms, not on ours. Jesus says he's the only gate. And that gate is small. And the gate is small because it means that we have to let go of everything that we might want to bring along with us. Actually, we've got to leave everything behind when we enter the narrow gate. Our sin, our self-righteousness, our pride, our covetousness, our material stuff sometimes. Sometimes even our family and our friends. Salvation through Jesus alone is a small gate. But in contrast, the world looks for a wide gate, a gate that's easy to get through. You can take everything with you. You can take anything with you. You can go just as you are. You need not leave anything behind, not even your sin, not your self-righteousness, not your pride. You can take it all with you through the wide gate. The world looks for many ways to come to God. We want a many ways to God kind of God naturally because we want our God to be like us. We want a God who's there to help us when we're in trouble, when we need some uh, outside assistance. But we don't want a God who is king. We don't want a God who we have to listen to, who we have to obey uh, whose uh, instructions we have to follow, we want to follow our own way, our own instructions. We don't want the gate to be small, so we have to go it, through it on our own. Um, I used to follow Sheffield United when I was very small. Uh, I know that's a sin in itself, isn't it, to some people? But um, And when you went to the football ground... And you had to go through a kind of turnstile. I don't know whether they still have them at football matches now, but you, you stood there and you paid your money and the man pressed the lever and you went through this very narrow entrance and the, the kind of turnstile thing. Uh, we don't want to go through, naturally speaking, a narrow turnstile. We want to go through in a crowd with everyone linking arms, having a, a great time. Uh, and we don't want the gate to be small because our human nature wants to minimize the seriousness of our sin and rebellion against God. See, we want to believe that we're good enough to be entitled to many ways to God. We'll choose the way. But actually, God's got no obligation to provide a way for us. We should be absolutely astonished 
that God has provided any way for us at all. But God has given us his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died, taking the punishment for our sin, who rose again on the third day. And we should be overwhelmed that there is a gate at all, that Jesus is the gate. And one gate, you know, is all that we need. And we're commanded by Jesus, enter through the narrow gate. Come to him. Walk through the narrow gate of salvation by him alone. And then Jesus wants us to walk the narrow road. Why is one road narrow and the other road wide? What does he mean by the road? Well, the Bible again tells us that the road is not a what, but a who. Just as Jesus is the gate, so Jesus is the way. Also in John, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. He's the way of sanctification. When you've entered through the narrow gate of salvation, then you walk the way of sanctification. 1 Corinthians says, You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's the narrow road that Jesus commands us to walk on. Sanctification is what happens next after we are saved, after we've entered the narrow gate and while we're still here on earth. We walk the narrow road. And the road is narrow because its boundaries are very clearly marked by what God has revealed in his word to be true and to be good. God's revealed truth imposes a limit on what I, as a Christian, believe. I don't believe there's many ways to God. I do believe that Jesus is the only way to God. And God's revealed goodness imposes a limit on how, how I might behave. Now, let me be very clear. We're not saved by keeping God's rules. Before we go through the narrow gate of salvation, all God's rules do is to condemn us because we can't keep them and we don't keep them. But God's rules pointed to Jesus, who did keep them perfectly. And when we're saved, we see God's rules as a beautiful thing, given for our protection and joy. But the road is broad for many people. And it's a road without rules, actually. It's the road of tolerance and permissiveness. There's plenty of room for your own opinions, for your own human standards of morality and behavior. We can follow our own inclinations, the desires of our own hearts in all its fallenness. You can take that along with you. It's as though we're saying to God, listen, it's my path. I'm going to walk in it my way. I'm going to do whatever I want. The saddest song a Christian can ever hear at a funeral is Frank Sinatra singing, my way. I did it my way. My uncle's funeral had that song. And I knew then, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. He did it his way, but he didn't do it 
God's way. The broad road in life is easy because it's the path of least resistance. It's governed by what I want to do. It bends to my will. But will you note that Jesus says his way is a narrow road, not necessarily a hard road. You see, God's rules, God's limits, are good limits for us. Psalm 16 says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. We can welcome Jesus' narrow road because Jesus tells us my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And God's rules, they show us the character of a good father who just wants our good. Why do parents and teachers teach their children to obey the rules? Well, we want them to make good decisions. We want them to make right decisions, decisions that will keep them safe. It's loving to give children rules. Children don't earn their parents' love by how well they obey the rules. That's a good job, isn't it? Uh, but it's right and safe uh, and good for them to learn the rules anyway. Of course they'll fail. And a loving parent has grace for them when they do. But a loving parent gives rules, sets rules for their children. And God is a gracious, loving father to us, his children, by giving us rules that are good and right for us to keep us safe on the narrow path that takes us through a very dangerous world to a very sure and certain destination. So we have two gates and two roads, and there are two groups of travellers. There's a group of people who have gone through the wide gate and are travelling along the broad road. Our passage tells us that many have gone through the wide gate and are travelling through down that uh, uh, broad road. It's a big crowd. There are lots of people on that road. Uh, I don't very often drive down the M1 at rush hour, uh, but the junction with the M18, it's just chaos. And it's a bit like that. You can't move for other cars on the road. The broad road is like that. It's busy. And the narrow road seems to be comparatively empty. Only a few people seem to find it. Jesus seems to have recognized that his followers will appear to be and will feel themselves to be a minority. Sometimes they'll feel ignored by society. Sometimes they'll feel despised by society. Sometimes they'll feel even a persecuted minority. So two gates, two roads, two crowds, and two destinations. The narrow way, entered by the narrow gate, leads to life. That's eternal life, which Jesus explained in terms of fellowship with God, beginning here on earth, but perfected in heaven, when we shall see him in all his glory. And uh, here we find fulfillment in selfish, selfish, uh, selfless sorry, service of him uh, uh, and uh, fellow human beings. Did you notice that the white path also has a sure and certain end as well. And I find this very difficult to preach about, but it's here in God's word, and so I must. Jesus talks 
that says, teaches that the broad way entered by the wide gate leads to destruction. It doesn't say exactly what he means by that because actually the exact nature of hell is as much beyond human understanding as the exact nature of heaven. But that word destruction suggests that in hell, everything good will not be there. Love and loveliness, beauty and truth, joy and peace and hope will all be gone. And there's no turning back. They are gone forever. I I don't know about you, but I find that an awful, awful prospect. That's why Jesus commands you to enter by the narrow gate. You see, there is no neutral ground. There are only two gates. There's no other gate. There are only two ways. There isn't a middle way. There are only two crowds, and you're in one or the other. And those crowds are going to one of two destinations, destruction or life. There is no third alternative Jesus is the gate of salvation and the way of sanctification and eternal life my brothers and sisters it is so important that you commit yourself to him that you follow him that you enter by the narrow gate and then Jesus warns us about false prophets. Verse 15, watch out for false prophets, he says. That means that not all prophets, teachers, are true. It tells us that truth can be debased. And the gospel's enemies usually conceal their hostility to the gospel and they pass themselves off as fellow believers. At first glance, The false prophets speak like Christians. Uh, They behave like Christians. They seem indistinguishable from true prophets. They look like good guys. I was watching uh, a news program on TV this morning. There was a minister from another, I'll call it a church in inverted commas, who was saying um, that they were going to do something which was, is entirely forbidden in the Bible. Their recommendation to their grouping of churches was that it's okay. And uh, he looked very reasonable. His trainee lady minister with him also was very reasonable. They didn't get a hard time from the interviewers. They looked like good guys. They're far from good guys. You see, a true prophet is commissioned by God to bring God's message to the people. A false prophet does not have God's authority. And while they claim to proclaim God's word, actually, they declare their own lie. False prophets will tell you what you want to hear. True teachers often tell people the truth that they don't want to hear. That's why they often had such a hard time in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And why godly ministers, godly evangelists today are sometimes on the receiving end of uh, very undeserved criticism. 
Jesus gives us the reason for his warning. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. False prophets are deceptive. They look like harmless sheep, but they aren't. They're very dangerous. In reality, they are wolves. Wolves sneak in among the flock in the disguise of sheep, and the unwary mistake them for sheep and give them an unsuspecting welcome. That's why the church must take great care when it chooses a minister or an elder or someone to serve. That's why the leadership of the church must be very careful who it allows to preach to its people. You see, good ministers, good elders, good preachers feed the flock with truth. But a false teacher, a false leader, leads the flock astray by preaching error. And please be very careful if you go to another church on holiday or you're out shopping or on the bus and you get involved in a conversation and someone claims to be a Christian. False teachers can be very plausible. And sometimes we Christians can be very gullible. And it's no accident that Jesus warning about false prophets immediately follows his teaching about the two ways and the two gates you see false prophets are really good at blurring how you may be saved they muddle or or distort the gospel and they make it hard for people to find the narrow way false prophets say stuff like well the devil you know it's, it's a kind of myth from old times They will say, yeah, hell, there's no such thing as hell. We've grown beyond all that. That was for medieval times. They'll say the things you think about as sin, well, it's not really sin at all. They'll say, God is love. He won't let anyone be punished forever. They'll say, God doesn't want you to suffer or be poor I think there's a song, Oh Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz? Um, And uh, I'd like to pray that. (laughs) I'd love a Mercedes Benz, but I don't think he's going to give me one. They'll say, if you're suffering or poor, it's simply that you don't have enough faith. You see, these false teachers are wolves because they lead people to the very destruction that they say doesn't exist. So you've got to look beneath the appearance to the reality. And Jesus tells us how to do that. And he changes from talking about sheep and wolves to talking about trees and fruit. He moves from the risks of non-recognition to the means of recognition. Verse 16. By their fruits you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Of course they don't. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. That's the test. By their fruit, you will recognize them. The first kind of fruit that reveals a false teacher's true identity is their character and their conduct. Whenever you 
see in a teacher something of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, uh, gentleness, self-control. When you see those things, uh, then you have reason to believe that that teacher is a true teacher, not a false teacher. On the other hand, when those qualities are missing, when actually the works of the flesh seem more evident, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like, says the Bible, then we have reason to believe that that teacher is a false teacher. The second kind of fruit that reveals a false prophet's true identity is their actual teaching. Like a tree can be identified eventually by the fruit. I have an apple tree in my garden. It's got little apples on it. That's how I know it's an apple tree. I have a cherry tree. Somebody tells me it's a cherry tree, but we've never had any fruit of it in its 10 years of existence, so I really don't know. Um, But uh, it's the fruit that reveals the true identity. Um, A person's heart is revealed by their words. And we have a responsibility, you have a responsibility, to test a teacher by their teaching. The Apostle John says this, Anyone who does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. A true teacher's message will be biblical. That's why it's so important that you read and study the Bible for yourself so you can begin to test whether a preacher's message is true or false. False prophets, false teachers rely on biblical ignorance in people. The third kind of fruit that reveals a prophet's true identity is their influence. What effect are they having on the congregation? A true teacher will work to promote faith and love and godliness. Uh, Sometimes the result of false teaching isn't seen immediately. It only becomes clear by its disastrous results. False teachers upset a people's faith. They promote ungodliness. They they kind of cause division. You see, thorns and thistles can't produce grapes and figs. Uh, Fruit takes time to grow. Sometimes you have to be patient. Sometimes you have to examine the fruit closely. Uh, Look at your teachers. Look at their character and conduct and message and motives and influence. You won't find perfection. You certainly won't find perfection. If you look at me, you'll find lots and lots of imperfections. But you should find evidence of good fruit in them. And then Jesus tells us not to be fooled by false followers. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day. That day. Jesus is taking the people into the future. He's talking about the end of the age. Jesus is talking about the day of final judgment when everyone will stand before him 
and the books will be opened and Jesus will judge. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There are some people who will address him as Lord, Lord. Uh, They speak to him on this day with reverence and with awe. I think everyone will speak to him at the day of judgment, actually, with reverence and awe. Jesus on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When God calls Samuel in the Old Testament, three times he says, Samuel, Samuel. The repetition shows us that this is a deep personal relationship. When these false followers say, Lord, Lord, they're claiming this deep personal relationship with Jesus. But Jesus is going to say, look, you can make it sound however you like, but I'm telling you, I never knew you. I never knew you. So who are these people? Jesus says that the person he will recognize, the person who will enter the kingdom of heaven, is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And the will of the Father in heaven is that you enter by the narrow gate. These people who cry out, Lord, Lord, they'll claim to have done mighty things in his name. Three times they appealed to his name as the source of their preaching and miracle-working power. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And Jesus says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. He describes these people as evildoers. The word actually means workers of lawlessness workers of lawlessness what these people have been doing is the exact opposite of what Jesus wants them to do back in chapter 5 Jesus said do you remember don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill the law and the prophets and he goes on to say that we should teach the law and we should seek to obey the law And here, Jesus tells these people they've done the opposite of what he asked. And look at the things they've done. These are massive firework display kind of things, aren't they? Prophesying, casting out demons, miracles. What these things have in common is that they all happen in front of big crowds. They're highly public. They're highly attention-getting. They're highly praised, these works that people say they did. They're saying, actually, Lord, Lord, we made you look awesome. Remember us? But what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that he wants to see in people's lives? Does he want to see the miracles of demons being cast out? Or the miracle of a broken and contrite heart? Does he want to see the miracle of someone prophesying a word over someone? 
or the miracle of someone who can control their lust or their anger? Does he want to see the miracle of a healing or the miracle of someone who trusts Jesus enough not to worry over much when their world seems to be falling apart? Jesus has been showing us throughout the Sermon on the Mount that these quiet acts of righteousness are every bit as miraculous as the showy stuff. Jesus is warning us to be careful. These big public displays of righteousness, they're by someone I don't even know. They never entered through the narrow gate. They never walked the narrow way. Their hearts were wrong. Their motives were selfish. Though they said, I as Lord, in reality they were claiming lordship for themselves and not for him. These men were not condemned because of what they said or did. They were condemned because they weren't true disciples. Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers, workers of lawlessness. You do the opposite of what I command. You do realize that Jesus not only decides who enters the kingdom on the last day, but who also will be banished from his presence. That he never knew these people. Shows how close to spiritual reality people may come while knowing nothing of its fundamental authenticity. Enter through the narrow gate, my brothers and sisters. And finally, Jesus tells us to be wise, to listen carefully to him, to do what he says. Verse 24, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So we ask, what's the word therefore, therefore, in therefore everyone who hears these words? Jesus is pointing back to these words of mine, all his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The literal translation of those words, wise man, is thoughtful man, thoughtful person. Someone who thinks about what Jesus has said and then applies it to their heart and their lives. Jesus wants your mind to be engaged with his teaching and for what you think and understand, for that to transform your life. Because we are transformed, the Bible tells us, by the renewing of our minds. The wise man is the thoughtful person. And the foolish man is the thoughtless person. They give no thought to what they've heard. It goes in one ear and out of the other. And Jesus gives us the picture of these two houses. The houses may look exactly the same, but you can't see the foundation of a house 
when you look at two houses, you can't see what they're built on until the storm comes. Notice that the storm comes on both houses. Because everyone, whether you're a Christian or not, will suffer trials in your life. And it's at that time of trial that we find out who's building on the foundation of these words of mine, Jesus' words, and who isn't. And what's the house? It's your life and your character. The Christian builds his life, seeks to become more Christ-like by listening to Jesus' words and asking for help in putting them into practice in everyday life. The non-Christian builds their life and character on their own idea of what's good and right. They have their own flimsy idea of morality. They measure themselves against other people. They'll tell you, I'm not bad enough to be sent to hell. Actually, I've done a few good things in my I'm not a bad chap, really. Look at them. That's not what Jesus says. Here comes the storm. One house stands, one house falls with a great crash. The Old Testament book of Isaiah, you know, has a similar picture to the wise and foolish builder. It says this, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this in people in Jerusalem. You boast we've entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of the death dread we've made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it can't touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. They think they can cheat death. They can do something that will uh, avoid hell and death. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you were beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, day by day, night by night, it will sweep through. It's a chilling picture of Destruction. It's a chilling picture of the end of the thoughtless, the one who scoffs, the one who treats these words of Jesus lightly. The person who does not hear and live out the words of Jesus builds a house of his own making on the shifting stands of human wisdom and the storms of life will destroy them. But the Christian build a house of Christ-likeness on the rock of the words of truth that the storms of life will test and the house will hold. Psalm 46 speaks to the Christian. God is our refuge and our strength. An ever-present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. 
God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has wrought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There is, in the words of the Sermon on the Mount, a sure foundation on which to build. There is, in the words of the Sermon on the Mount, a sure test by which we can discern error. There is, in the words of the Sermon on the Mount, a sure path which we can tread. Jesus warns us. Jesus says to us, don't merely listen to my words. Do what I say. Enter by the narrow gate of salvation. Walk the narrow path of sanctification to eternal life. Don't listen to false prophets. Don't be fooled by false followers. Build your life on the solid rock of these words of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, sometimes it is a solemn and an awesome thing to preach your word. But my words, Father, cannot make a difference. Only you can make a difference. Heavenly Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, will you build up your people in this church here today? Father, will you reassure them of the wonder of their faith, of the rightness of entering through the narrow gate, of the rightness of walking that narrow path. Reassure them, Father, that you have a home, a place of eternal life and security for them in the new creation, Father. But if there are those here, Father, who do not know the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, please, may your words not go in one ear and out of the other. Please, Heavenly Father, reveal to them their true condition. Reveal to them the end of the broad gate and the broad way. Please, Heavenly Father, Open their eyes, cause them to turn to you in sorrow and repentance. Heavenly Father, save the lost, we pray. In Jesus' name.